Our uh, scripture reading this morning will be in Luke 22. Luke 22. And we'll read verses 31 to 34 and then 54 to 62. Luke 22, starting at verse 31. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you, that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you, that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Peter said to him, Lord, I am ready to go with you both to prison and to death. Jesus said, I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day until you deny three times that you know me. And down to verse 54. Then they seized him and led him away, and bringing him into the high priest's house, and Peter was following at a distance. And when they had kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard and sat down together, Peter sat down among them. Then a servant girl, seeing him as he sat in the light and looking closely at him, said, This man also was with him. But he denied it, saying, Woman, I do not know him. And a little later, someone else saw him and said, You also are one of them. But Peter said, Man, I am not. And after an interval of about an hour, still another insisted, saying, Certainly this man also was with him, for he too is a Galilean. But Peter said, Man, I do not know what you are talking about. And immediately, while he was still speaking, the rooster crowed. And the Lord turned and looked at Peter, and Peter remembered the saying of the Lord, how he had said to him, Before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. This is the word of the Lord. There are many things my dad is good at, but cooking is not one of them. There was a week when I was a kid that dad was on cooking duty because mom was in Holland for the week. Generally, things went well until dad decided it was time to empty the fridge. That was when my brothers and I were introduced to Hungarian goulash, Van Klinken style. Leftover pasta mixed with frozen vegetables, the kind with plenty of lima beans, ketchup, and maybe even some leftover hot dog bits. And no matter how much we doused that dish with Parmesan cheese, it was tough to get down. I like to think that's when my brothers and I really became brothers, enduring that hardship together. <laughs> the anticipation of tasting something that unpleasant kept mom vacationing with dad from that point forward. As Christians, we have the uneasy anticipation of tasting something unpleasant as well. The taste of cancellation. Canceled, being silenced or removed 
from participating in mainstream dialogue for holding views that are increasingly considered to be unacceptable, outdated, or even harmful. Really, it's for our loyalty to Jesus Christ and the pursuit of godliness. As Christians, we understand we cannot and would not force or coerce anyone into a right relationship with God. But we would appeal to and even plead with the unbeliever to be reconciled to God. And we pray to that end that the Holy Spirit would both change and soften hearts. Nevertheless, Christians are often accused of forcing their beliefs on others, of being unloving and radical. And they are, at times, canceled. It may cause us to wonder if our number will be called, if we will be canceled, either individually or perhaps even as a congregation. In the days of Scripture, there was no cancel culture. That really is a term of the last five to ten years. But disciples of Jesus Christ would certainly have been familiar with the ingredients of canceling. A world who loves the darkness rather than the light. A coercion towards conformity, even uniformity. Bullying and betrayal. And being ostracized, sometimes even with a heartlessness or a cruelty. Simply put, we would call this suffering. Not the definition of suffering, but a form of suffering. And there are other forms of suffering too. Some more subtle, perhaps tension in relationships because of Christ. Some more medial, maybe ridicule or hostility. And some suffering is more extreme than we are typically used to. Poverty, imprisonment, and even death. Some suffering is happening now. Some will happen later. This morning, we're going to consider the disciple who sought to exchange the suffering that he was called to for something he perceived to be higher and more noble. What happens when we pursue suffering? Let's pray. Our Father and our God, thank you that we can come to your word this morning. And even now we ask that you would uh, soften our hearts to the truth of your word. Lord, that your Holy Spirit would work and prepare in us that which you would have for us. And so we commit this time to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Our passage this morning is in Luke 22. Jesus has just observed the Passover with his disciples and has instituted the Lord's Supper. He has corrected the disciples' understanding of greatness. And before they move to the Mount of Olives to pray, Jesus has this warning for Peter and the other disciples. Verse 31. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. This is a warning, a warning to the disciples generally and to Peter specifically. Satan wants to sift the disciples. The plural form of you here is used by Jesus. Sifting, picture a painful refining process, separating the wheat from the chaff. Jesus has prayed that the disciples' faith would not fail, a reference to his high priestly prayer in John 17. 
And Jesus says Peter will fail, at least temporarily. But he adds, when he has turned again, when he has repented or turned back, Peter should strengthen his brothers. Peter, Satan will be allowed to put you through a painful refining process that will test your faith and cause you to falter. But I have prayed for you. After you have repented, strengthen the others. In shorthand, Peter has been called by Jesus to suffer and endure. To suffer and endure. But look at his response in verse 33. Peter said to him, Lord, I am ready to go with you both to prison and to death. Jesus didn't say anything here about prison and death to Peter. He did mention sifting, faith, turning or repentance, and strengthening. But not prison and death. A different form of suffering. A different calling. Peter rejects the form of suffering he was called to in that moment. He did not want refining and repentance. He wanted the most extreme form of suffering, martyrdom. We can do this sometimes. Look for ways to be humiliated with Jesus. Perhaps we even invite them. Often, if we're honest, it's not humiliation with Jesus that we're looking for, but really honor. We want the badge of suffering for him. And we understand that a follower of Jesus would jump at the opportunity to identify with Jesus. But there is a difference in being called to suffer by God and looking for our own opportunities to suffer. If God has not called us to suffer, but we have called ourselves, we're likely relying on our own strength to endure that trial, if we can even call it a trial. In his book, The Story of Christianity, Justo Gonzalez writes of the Christians who were prosecuted by Rome for their faith. A number of them sought out martyrdom, while many others, when they were confronted, declared they were not Christians, or they were Christians, but had since abandoned the faith. The litmus test was threefold, with three opportunities to recant before execution. Pray to the gods, burn incense before the image of the emperor, and curse Christ. Gonzalez wrote, those early Christians believed that martyrdom was not something that one chose, but something for which one was chosen by God. Those who were so chosen were strengthened by Christ, who suffered with them, and for that reason were able to stand firm. Their firmness was not of their own doing, but of God. He continues, On the other hand, those who ran forward and offered themselves for martyrdom the spontaneous, as they were known, were false martyrs. The spontaneous were false martyrs. In many circumstances, they were not able to stand firm. And there was a big question for the church. What do we do with these people who have recanted? Are they still our brothers and sisters? If we go looking for suffering, we may find we cannot endure it. 
not on our own anyways. Jesus said to Peter in John 13, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow me afterward, a reference to Peter's eventual martyrdom. Suffering to the point of death is something Peter will be called to one day by God, but right now, Peter is calling himself to suffer, self-appointed suffering. As Christians, when we do this, appoint ourselves to suffer, we can risk hurting those who are close to us, our brothers and sisters. You'll notice in our passage this morning that there are benefactors to Peter's trial, the other disciples. When you have turned, when you, Peter, have repented, strengthen your brothers. Peter's failure and subsequent repentance would have the effect of strengthening the other disciples. This was the suffering Jesus had called him to. Similar, in a way, to the repentance and strengthening produced in King David's life after he had sinned with Bathsheba and murdered her husband Uriah. In Psalm 51, the well-known psalm on repentance, David writes, Cast me not away from your presence. Take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. But then, after repentance, David adds this, Then I, I the repentant, will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. When a repentant sinner can testify firsthand of the mercy and the forgiveness that flows generously from the cross, it is a powerful tool in leading others in repentance themselves. One of the best pieces of evidence for Christianity is the first-hand testimony of a repentant and forgiven sinner whose life has been changed. The suffering Peter was called to was, ha was to have the effect of strengthening his brothers and sisters. Yet Peter rejects this idea of suffering in humiliation and seeks to trade it in for the honor of going down with the ship. Self-appointed suffering, dying on a cross next to Jesus. And then these words, which must have fallen like a stone. I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day until you deny three times that you know me. Not only would Peter be excluded from dying with Jesus, not only would he deny knowing Jesus, but he would deny knowing Jesus three times. Triple denial. A sobering truth for the man who wanted so much. And of course, it didn't take long for these events to unfold, just as Jesus had said. We read in verses 54 to 62, Peter had denied knowing Jesus to three different people in a very short period of time. Scripture says immediately while he was still speaking, the rooster crowed. And the Lord learned, uh, turned and looked at Peter, and Peter remembered the saying of the Lord, and he went out and wept bitterly. Peter was called to suffer and endure for the good of his brothers, for the church to be a picture of refinement and repentance and restoration, as we will discuss next week. Yet he failed in this moment because in his own strength, 
He pursued not the suffering he was called to, but the suffering Jesus was called to. Peter the spontaneous. Peter was the one who was called to suffer and endure. Jesus was the one who was called to suffer and die, to drink the cup of the Father's wrath. We've heard that phrase before, cups of wrath. The phrase cups of wrath in Scripture usually refers to God's coming and impending judgment against a nation or against a group of people. As sin increases, the cup of God's wrath rises fuller and fuller until it bubbles to the brim and it is ready to be consumed by the offenders. It is to be drunk by those who have sinned against him. Cups of wrath is similar to the idea of God hiding his face, handing over his people to judgment by withdrawing his protective presence from them. The illustration is used throughout Scripture. In Isaiah, in reference to Jerusalem falling under foreign powers. In Jeremiah, the prophet was to take the cup of God's wrath to the nations that would be under his judgment, and he was actually to cause them to drink it to the, to the point of vomiting. It's a very unpleasant taste, but an impactful object lesson. And of course, in Revelation, we read of Babylon, that worldly empire that is to drink the cup of God's wrath in the last days. And Jesus picks up on this illustration and language when he's praying in the garden. He says, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Jesus was called to suffer and die. Jesus was preparing to receive and consume the full cup of judgment for an entire group of people singularly on himself. Usually it was a nation that received God's wrath and now it is Jesus and Jesus alone. A heavy price, daunting and intimidating. Remove this cup, this judgment, the suffering of the wrath of God for the sins of the world to the point of death, the highest degree of suffering, the most extreme form of suffering, the ultimate in suffering. And there is no spontaneity here. Jesus was called to this by his Father. You can see Jesus' acknowledgement of his calling throughout his ministry. When he came into the world, he said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. Or during his ministry, he said, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his purpose. Or in the garden, shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? And my Father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. And because Jesus was called by the Father to suffer and to die, he was given the grace, the supply, to accomplish the Father's will. To face our sins as the Father turned his face away. To anticipate the unpleasant taste of the wrath of God. And many times throughout history, royalty and other people of power would be protected by cupbearers or wine tasters. Servants 
who would taste the cup of the king as an early detection system against poison. Individuals who would put their lives on the line for the king. We read of the cupbearer who was imprisoned with Joseph in Egypt. In a similar way, the world has been offered a cupbearer, a wine taster, in the person of Jesus Christ. Except in this case, the royalty, the king of heaven and earth, Jesus Christ, fully God and fully man, has left his throne, come to dwell with us, the lowly sinner, and has tasted the cup on our behalf. And he didn't stop at tasting. He drank it, all of it, down to the dregs, and it is empty. There is nothing left for us sinners to drink. The wrath of God was poured out and satisfied as Jesus fulfilled his calling, suffering to the point of death for the sins of the world on the cross. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, and with his wounds we are healed. In the words of Caiaphas, the high priest, meant politically and now understood redemptively, it would be expedient that one man should die for the people. But there are some who won't believe and won't confess that one man died for the people or drank for the people. If that is you this morning, I am compelled to warn you that either Christ drank the cup for you or you will drink it yourself. The book of Revelation speaks of the final time when God removes his protective presence from a group of people, this time those on the earth. His wrath will be poured out in devastating ways on those who will not believe. And then there is no security, but only eternal death and separation from God and from his people forever. We're about to come to the Lord's table to remember the work of Jesus, drinking and emptying the cup of wrath in our place. And there is an invitation for you to repent and to be restored. Accept the cup that Jesus drank on your behalf and be reconciled to God. Be healed by his wounds. Accept the testimony of those who are observing communion together, the testimony of repentant and forgiven sinners. They testify by taking the bread and drinking the cup, emptying it together. For believers, we can rest in the knowledge that God's wrath has been satisfied. We drink a cup at the communion table, not of wrath, but of remembrance, remembering the cup that Jesus drank on our behalf. And we don't know what may lie ahead. Jesus said, in the world you will have tribulation. That may come in different forms and to different degrees. Pressure or coercion. Bullying and betrayal. Cancellation. Perhaps poverty, imprisonment, or death. But take heart, Jesus says, I have overcome the world. If we are called to suffer, to whatever degree, subtle, medial, 
or extreme, we will be supplied to suffer. And so we do take heart. Peter would eventually learn this, and we'll look at it a little more next week. After the ascension of Jesus, Peter was called to preach and teach, but he was also called to face imprisonment, intimidation, and the threat of death. Scripture says the disciples prayed for boldness, and when they had prayed, Acts says, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. Peter and the other disciples were called, and so they were supplied. And as we anticipate that there may be some unpleasant taste ahead of us, we can go forward and be strengthened, knowing that Jesus has prayed for us, and he intercedes for us. He is our supply, our bottomless cup of grace. The high priestly prayer of John 17 was not just for the disciples of the day, but for us too. Jesus said, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. Jesus didn't pray that we would be kept from suffering, but rather supplied through suffering. He prayed that the Father would keep us, that his disciples would be one, just as the Father, Son, Spirit are one. That we would have Jesus' joy fulfilled in us. That we would be kept from the evil one. And that we would be sanctified in his truth. And so we can close this morning, those who know Christ, remembering Jesus' words as we approach the communion table. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for great is your reward in heaven. Let's pray. Our Father, we do anticipate that there is suffering and that there are trials ahead. We know that. You have told us that. And Lord, it's our desire to respond well to whatever you have called us to. We are your people, and you have bought us back out of our sin through the work of your Son. And so we thank you. We echo the words of John when we recall that grace upon grace is available to us through Christ, and that we will be supplied to match the trial that you may have called us to. Lord, as we approach uh, your communion table, we thank you for the cup that Jesus drank for us, that it is empty that we can be reconciled to you and that we can look forward, Father, being strengthened and with confidence. And so we give you all the praise and glory this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.